hope that this will be part of a larger, sustained dialogue between all political parties on campus. If any of the ideas that you hear tonight are of interest of you, to you, then we encourage you to come to one of our Campus Greens meetings. Our next meeting will be held this Thursday at 8 p.m. in Murray Dodge. Um, before our speakers begin, I'd like to give you a brief overview of tonight's program. Mr. Nader will be introduced by both Professor Richard Falk and New Jersey Green Party Congressional Candidate Carl Mayer. Now, following Mr. Nader's speech, there will be a question and answer period. There are two microphones on either side of the hall, and audience members are welcome to come down and ask questions, and there will be ushers here to assist you. Now, it is my pleasure to present Professor Richard Falk. Professor Falk has been a member of the Princeton faculty since 1961. He's a professor with the Woodrow Wilson School. He is also the author of the recently published book, Predatory Globalization. And he is a member of the National Citizens Committee for Nader and Leduc. Now please join me in welcoming Professor Falk. It is an exceptional pleasure and challenge for me to have this opportunity to welcome you here tonight and to help present Ralph Nader. I believe deeply that Ralph Nader's campaign is the most promising political development in American life in a very long time. Its value extends far beyond the presidential elections in November. The large and enthusiastic audiences attending Nader's appearances around the country reveal a hunger for a new politics in America, especially among the young. The Nader campaign and such local Green Party candidates as Karl Mayer offer us some hope that we can rescue our democratic system from its current condition of decay. When the Soviet tyrant Stalin told his foreign minister Molotov that the trouble with democratic elections is that they are unpredictable, he was not making a joke. Sadly, as we speak, American elections have become dismally predictable. Of course, the mainstream candidates look somewhat different from one another on TV, they each lie or fib in their own ways, and they each have their own exaggerated details, and each spends tens of millions to get himself elected. But American elections have increasingly become a democratic hoax. They give the illusion of fundamental choice that is fooling fewer and fewer people, especially among the young and minorities. To be fair, on such issues as abortion, judicial appointments, tax policy, and social security, Gore is preferable to Bush. But to say this is not to admit that Gore is an acceptable candidate. 
His stance on capital punishment, globalization, nuclear weaponry, the Middle East, guns, are indistinguishable from those of Bush or worse. We have reached a point that the political and moral failures to face the real challenges confronting America and the world are no longer tolerable. We have waited long enough. The time for third-party politics in America has arrived. Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader provides the voice that is giving rise to a real movement of the people for change. Now is the time to seek alternatives and restore faith in democracy. The campaign of Ralph Nader is exciting beyond our wildest imagination and our wildest expectations. Nader has been showing us that there is a different way to understand the world. Nader has demonstrated also that there is a democratic way to seek support from citizens. His campaign does not promise some vague and minimal reform in campaign financing. It embodies a grassroots approach to campaign financing that frees political advocacy from the iron grip of money and special interests. Beyond this, Nader offers us an understanding of why corporate globalization is so destructive in its present form, why it harms workers and the poor here and elsewhere, and why it risks the future by its failure to protect the global commons. Not only does globalization deprive Americans of their sovereignty, it likely deprives our children of a sustainable future and it gradually makes us all feel more like subjects than citizens. It is significant that Ralph Nader is the candidate of the Green Party, which stands above all for environmental protection, for grassroots politics, for an economy that is fair and a political system that is truly democratic. Big Big money and big media have combined to shut Ralph Nader and Pat Buchanan out of the national presidential debate. It would be embarrassing, I suppose, to compare the Bush-Gore quibbles over policies and their evasion of challenges with the real attempt by Ralph Nader to give us an understanding of what has gone wrong and what to do about it. The media closure denies Americans the opportunity to listen to candidates with different ideas about policy. It freezes the national debate in a sea of sterility and tempts many of us to drop out of political life altogether. But Ralph Nader is bringing us back. He is giving us hope that democracy can achieve renewed vitality by the people of this country. He is making us realize that we need urgently to find ways to obstruct the path to the future that is being so dangerously cleared by corporate globalization. I have admired Ralph Nader for decades. 
His integrity and passion have served me and many others as a continuing source of inspiration and have given us confidence that the struggle for change and justice is necessary and worthwhile. His consumer movement pioneered the struggle long before he decided to run seriously for president. It is my particular privilege and joy to welcome Ralph Nader back here to Princeton. <laughs> And, it, and finally, isn't it about time that this university gives the country another president? Thank you very much. I'm uh, uh, Carl Mayer, Princeton class of 81. I'm here to uh, introduce uh, Mr. Nader and want to thank everyone for coming out tonight. I'm very grateful and particularly want to acknowledge the, the people that put this event together. Um, these events, including the 15,000 person event in Madison Square Garden, take some amount of work. <laughs> If you really, if you give a, a round of applause for Helen Laban, who worked so hard on this, it really would, would uh, really deserve your appreciation. And I'd also like you to uh, acknowledge David Tannenbaum, also of the university, who worked very hard on this, as well as Sam Narrow and uh, uh, Bruce Afrin and Stuart Azaki. So if you give them a round of applause for, for helping out, that, that, would, that would be terrific. Uh, I, want, I want to thank the, the Dean's office for making this possible, uh, President Shapiro's office for moving the orchestra around. I, I hope our musical abilities here are up to the orchestras. Um, and uh, lastly, I'd like to thank the University Council's office, because in the middle of doing all this organizing this week, the, the University uh, uh, Council's office called, and they had a number of uh, restrictions and regulations for us to follow. And, and um, I want to thank them because they reminded me that, that my undergraduate degree at Princeton was so much more important than my law degree. In the following um, respect, the, the university had all sorts of regulations, no uh, Green Party signs, no, um, no uh, campaigning, no politics, none of this on the stage, all of which, um, all of which we're delighted to uh, comply with. But it, um, it occurred to me that you have to put the law in a, in a broader context. And clearly, the purpose of not wanting any signs or things on the stage is that the, the legal counsel's office was concerned that Princeton University might be seen as embracing the politics of the Green Party. And I, I thought to myself, well, now that might be an interesting hypothetical for, for law school, but w would any federal judge say, the trustees and administration of Princeton University are going to change the orange and black to the green and black. They're going to em embrace the Green Party. It's n not likely. Now, if you if you ask the federal judge, well, you know, what's more likely that uh, pterodactyls are flying around the planet, or that uh, Princeton University uh, trustees and administration has gone green and they're they're using? <laughs> I, I think. I think uh, I think the judge would go with the, uh, the pterodactyls, I think. Um, <clears throat> so 
nonetheless, I'm happy to comply with the University Council's rules and regulations. But actually, I have a legal request of the University Council's myself. So memo to Princeton University Council from Carl Mayer. Excuse my dictation, but it's a very short notice. We are happy to comply with the rules and regulations surrounding this stage in this forum, but I think you have missed one critical legal issue that's of interest to everyone in the university community surrounding areas. To wit, the core legal issue is, how can a corporate-funded entity called the Debate Commission illegally, in my judgment, exclude one of Princeton's most distinguished graduates from the debates to elect a popular president? And I encourage the University Council, plus members of the administration, and I respectfully ask President Shapiro and the trustees to join Mr. Nader and others in the lawsuit that will be filed to require the Debate Commission to open up the debates to one of Princeton's most distinguished alumni. Now, we hate to break up the Harvard-Yale football game that Gore and Bush have going on. And it is rather, it's just almost enchanting what these two gentlemen sees performers from Yale and Harvard are doing in these debates. But nonetheless, I believe that there is a serious legal issue about the corporate contributions that fund the Debate Commission are, in fact, illegal corporate contributions to two parties, which has been illegal in this country since the time of Woodrow Wilson, who, as a distinguished member of this community, would have very much, I think, called for inclusion of Ralph Nader in these debates. And 100 years later, I think, after Woodrow Wilson, we shouldn't still be revisiting this issue. So I hope... So I hope that you recognize that if the Commission is successful in keeping Ralph out of the final debate on Tuesday, they will have silenced from the public a signal and important voice who's not only a distinguished alum, but has touched everyone's lives in important ways. As you go through your life every day, somehow it's touched by Ralph Nader, whether you are in your automobile and you realize the safety features that are in the automobile, whether it's the labeling on the food that you eat, whether it's clean water and clean air because Ralph fought for the passage of those laws, whether it's... Whether it's the Meat Inspection Act, so when you go down to Wawa's in the middle of the night to grab a snack, you have a certain set of standards that are met because of the meat inspection laws that Mr. Nader passed. So he's touched your life every day. In a certain sense, sometimes people say he doesn't need an introduction. He very much does need an introduction because he's too modest. And you don't often hear in the press that he was considered even by Time and Life magazine, which are mainstream publications, to be sure, as one of the 100 greatest Americans of the 20th century. And he also...
You won't hear that American lawyer um, named him one of the handful of the greatest lawyers of the, the, the 20th century, or that he's had an effect on uh, American public life in so many ways. In fact, it's, it's really hard to characterize all of his contributions because he's a lawyer, he's an author, but he really has invented his own profession of consumer advocacy. He's invented uh, a field of public interest law. Um, it's, it's very hard to, to uh, categorize him. And if you want further, uh, since, since we won't have a political discussion here, for those of you who would like, afterwards at Triumph, right after the Triumph Brewery across the street, there will be a, a discussion, a political discussion, that uh, one can engage in with Ralph, if you would like. So, so without, uh, without, further, uh, without further ado, let me introduce the, it's hard to, to classify, one could call him a deacon of democracy, a professor of progressivism, an ace activist, a consumer crusader, a juggernaut for justice, one of Princeton's most distinguished alumni that doesn't rhyme, but you know it's true, <clears throat> the foundation of the public interest nation, and I'd like you all to join and rise and greet Ameri uh, uh, the people's president, Ralph Nader. Thank you very much, uh, Carl, for those understated commendations. And, and thank you all for coming on relatively short notice. Uh, it's nice to be back. Uh, I want to just mention a few things. Carl Mayer is running for the U.S. House of Representatives seat here from this area. And, and uh, also there are several other Greens running for Mercer County freehold uh, positions. They're here today. Uh, Susan Decker, Dan Martin, and Paul Silverman, they all here. I want to thank uh, Helen for all her work. You know, these things don't happen easily. And Professor Falk for his great uh, efforts throughout the years waging peace, something we don't devote much uh, of our resources to compared to preparing for war. He still believes in international law. Hmm. <laughs> well, here we are. Let me uh, just uh, illustrate here uh, what uh, this campaign is, is all about. Uh, it's all about uh, People losing control. Uh, people losing control of almost everything that matters to them. Uh, campaigning throughout the country, uh, the uh, labels that people put on themselves, uh, conservative, liberal, whatever, moderate, progressive, they disappear when you ask them the question, do you think you're losing control? And people are losing control very rapidly over everything that matters to them, whether it's their government, their workplace, their environment, whether it's even over control of their own time, uh, over the protection of childhood, 
They're losing control over their own human genes now. They're losing control over their personal privacies. They're losing control with other Americans and what a democracy should be uh, very good at, and that is planning the future, shaping the future. And who are they losing control to? Who's the dominant power in the following arenas? On government, on universities, on the workplace, on affecting the environment, on the media, on international systems of autocratic governance that we call trade agreements. Who are the dominant parties on the IMF, on the World Bank? Who are the dominant parties on the very shaping of our culture? Large corporations. The concentration of power and wealth in large corporations has been echoed in terms of condemnation of such by many of our illustrious predecessors. These caveats came again and again from people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Woodrow Wilson took note of an immense new power that's more powerful than the U.S. government, as he put it. Those were the giant trusts, as they were called, the giant corporations of those days. It was Justice Brandeis who put it best, I think, when he said, quote, in 1941, he said, quote, we can have a democratic society or we can have the concentration of great wealth in the hands of the few. We cannot have both, end quote. Now, here at Princeton, at least when I was there, we had a very, very uh, thin uh, focus in our curriculum on corporate power. One professor in particular, H.H. H. Wilson at the Department of Political Science, actually had the temerity uh, to call his course Corporate Power in America. It was called Corporate Power. For this, he paid a dear price. It took a long time for him to become a full professor although he was greatly uh, motivating of students, had a high standard of scholarship, and he published. Uh, yet, that was about the only course in the Department of Political Science that dealt with corporate power. I always thought that the central contention of politics was uh, the distribution of power. Who has it, who doesn't, who uses it, who misuses it. All the old definitions that Laswell, McDougall, and others wrote about in their books in the 1940s. But that wasn't the case. Now, here in Princeton, you have a Department of Economics that has similar empirical starvation. They talk about economic indices as if they don't have any qualitative differentiation or distributional differentiation. Something happens to scholarship when it develops premises that are removed from the reality of people's daily lives. And you might want to question your own courses and your own curriculum in whatever department you're in uh, in that regard. The loss of control has some severe consequences. One of them is the deception of reality uh, in this country uh, as espoused by the plutocracy or the oligarchy ruled by the rich and powerful. We are told that we have 10 years of sustained economic growth and the economy could hardly be better. For who? For the contented classes, as Galbraith called them? For, for you, when you graduate? For who? 10 years of economic growth, with the majority of the workers making less today in real dollars than they made 20 and 25 years ago and working 163 hours on the average longer every year? For the 20% of the children growing up in abject poverty 
and another almost 20% growing up in a category called near poverty. For the 47 million workers in this country, one out of every three workers in this country who make a non-living wage, less than $10 an hour, $6, Walmart, McDougal, you know, McDonald's, for uh, people who don't even begin to make ends meet without thrusting two, three members of the family going out, dead-end jobs, working in Walmarts and all the other places, don't pay uh, a living wage, they don't pay adequate benefits, even though the companies are making enormous profits and so are their executives. Ten million people are working at $5.15 an hour, the federal minimum wage, and 70% of them are adults. You've got women in their mid-40s with uh, single parents with children working in Walmart for $6.60 an hour before they deduct the cost of having to get a second-hand car, an insurance policy, a repair bills, daycare. Do you realize how far behind we are compared to Western European countries? We're always ballyhooing ourselves as being number one, number one. And in some cases, we are number one. We're number one in the number of people we have in prison, number one in the number of people who uh, We have as many people in prison for drug addiction, perhaps, than all the prisoners in all the prisons in Western European countries. 500,000. We have 2 million people in prison. It's more than they have in China, which has a larger population. We're number one in being the greatest debtor in the world. In 1980, we were the biggest creditor. They owed us. Now we owe them. We're number one in the biggest trade deficit in the world, by far. It's now 26 straight years of trade deficit, so much for what free trade brings us on, so-called free trade. It brings us bigger deficits, which means more debt and exporting jobs. But that's okay, say some economists. Well, we are such a great economy that everybody wants to lend us money to cover our deficit. It could be they have to. But what's more important is how our expectation levels have been driven down in our country. Once you control public expectation levels, you control people. You don't need much else. Just, just to give you one illustration, this economy has doubled in real output per capita since 1968. The minimum wage today in purchasing power is $2.15 less than it was in 1968, where today it would be about $7.30. It's now $5.15. What does that tell you? It's just another sign of how the gains of the economic juggernaut in this country are accruing largely to the top 10%, largely to the top 5%, hugely to the top 1%, whose net wealth is equal to the combined net wealth of the bottom 95% of the people in this country. If you want to go into that deeper, there's a new book out called Democracy at Risk, Saving Main Street from Wall Street by Jeffrey Gates, who worked on the Senate Finance Committee. And you'll see in the first 20 pages the enormous income and wealth inequities in this country. What is keeping the family going? More and more time at work. More and more time at dead-end jobs, low-paid jobs. More and more consumer debt. It's at $6.2 trillion at the present time, record high. More and more time to commute back and forth. Less and less time for family for children, for community, for civic engagement, for just taking a breath. 
Economics was supposed to be a means to an end. It's become the end. And it's infecting students. Students now go to college and university often just to prepare themselves to get a better job, as if there's nothing else for a university to offer. But when the university is increasingly corporatized, When a university is increasingly corporatized, the horizons are lowered for the students when the faculty, administration, and the trustees or board of governors should be raising these horizons. Read the Aims of Education by Alfred North Whitehead, a little book published in the 1920s, and then compare it with the horizons that are provided uh, at, for students at universities all over the country. Uh, we've tried to do something here at Princeton by forming, forming Princeton Project 55. Our class of 55 organized a foundation and, and provides uh, civic uh, action internships and uh, postgraduate careers. It's been very successful for Princeton undergraduates. I think it's about the biggest placement factor, any single placement factor, and the students gravitate to it. Uh, every year with great enthusiasm. That's why the class of 55, as they march down the P-rate, get the biggest applause. <laughs> and, and also, uh, the class has marshaled uh, a major effort on global tuberculosis and trying to focus on our neglect vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis global uh, infectious diseases by uh, completely distorted priorities in our public budgets. But the horizon factor is is, is really important. And, and what we need to, uh, to focus on is what will liberate our civic and political energies so we can engage in a very uh, profoundly deliberative democracy uh, so that we can begin using democratic processes to solve problems and prevent injustice and become more systemic about it, both here and to the extent we can help uh, around the world. Uh, there's never been a richer and more powerful country that has shortchanged itself in terms of its promise and its performance. Never. It's never come close. We have enormous pools of capital in this country that are not being placed in productive outlets. We have enormous scientific and engineering talent that is being repressed by giant corporations who have an interest in antiquated vested technologies like fossil fuels and nuclear power instead of solar energy and energy efficiency technologies. And that, that is important. And, uh, and you have a center here that documents that beautifully, uh, led by uh, Professor Williams. Uh, and has done so for a number of years. But you see, without power, political power behind those constructive responses that, that are so significant uh, throughout the world, they don't go very far. Uh, knowledge uh, to swing into action needs political power behind it, uh, power that uh, is accountable and leaves options open for revision, to be sure. 
But now the political power in Washington belongs to the large corporations, their trade associations, their 22,000 full-time lobbyists, their 9,000 political action committees swarming over the city, buying, renting, selling politicians, rewarding them, punishing the few that stand up to them, and putting their own executives in key government departments and agencies. The Treasury Department belongs to Wall Street. They picked the Treasury Secretary. Uh, the Department of Commerce belongs to uh, the trade associations. Uh, they pick them. And in one area after another, you see people leaving their corporations, a little on-the-job training in Washington, and then they leave for higher executive positions. And what does that mean for all of us? It means that, that solutions remain on the shelf and the problems fester and they get worse. And our expectation level lowers, and before you know it, we have been pacified into accepting a status quo that is ignoring future perils and is indifferent to present tragedies and deprivations. This happens because we grow up corporate. We don't grow up civic. I grew up corporate. You're probably growing up corporate. It's very easy to test yourselves. Ask yourselves what you own. Make a list until you get down to the paper clip. And then ask yourself if you ever put an answer to what you own, that I am a, a, uh, a co-owner of the great commonwealth assets of our country, the public airways, the public works, and the public lands, one-third of America. I, I may be even a co-owner of the biggest capital pool in the history of the world, labor pension funds that are owned by the workers and controlled by banks, insurance companies, and other employers like GE and IBM. Who, who determine where these funds are invested and often invest them in outlets that are inimical to the workers' very interests. And more important, strip the workers of an enormous capital pool of direct investment by which they can begin to leverage through their shares uh, their concerns vis-a-vis -vis large corporations, which have routinely stripped their owners of any kind of ownership uh, power uh, in what Burley and Means called back in the 1930s the separation of ownership and control between shareholders who own the companies and the management and board of directors who control these uh, companies. Another way of showing how we grew up corporate is if I use the following words, what comes to mind? Crime, violence, welfare, regulation. Probably street crime and war, violence, same thing, uh, welfare, poor people, regulation, government. What should come to mind, at least if you had an equitable selection of the data that would, uh, uh, that would compel a revision of what those terms evoke, is corporate crime, corporate violence, corporate welfare, and corporate regulation of our lives, which are far, far towering over any level of street crime or street violence or poverty welfare or government regulation. We are regulated by far more by corporations. They do it through Washington and Trenton, through their influence, often turning government against its own people, or certainly making sure that government turns its back on its own people in area after area. The highway lobby is a good example of that, de depriving uh, millions of people from modern, efficient, elevated uh, mass transit systems, for example, so they don't have to spend a good portion of their lives in crowded bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, breathing the contamination, cursing one another in road rage, and wasting their time. But the the uh, the figures on corporate crime in terms of property theft, defrauding, 
uh, con games, swindles, etc., uh, are, are hugely greater uh, than street crime. There's no comparison. The General Accounting Office estimated a few years ago 10% of the entire health care dollar goes down the drain through computerized billing, fraud, and abuse. You know, you can't even understand your bills anymore. They're all in code. And if you try to call and check, you get the press one, press two, press three routine with some robotic voice saying, we appreciate your business, hold on. And then they play ads for your ears to receive. The, uh, that, that's $110 billion this year. That's what that amounts to, 10% of the health care dollar, just in computerized billing fraud and abuse, 110 billion. It goes right through. Uh, there are major stories that appear in the major press documenting this every once in a while. The press reaches its finest moments. New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, uh, 60 Minutes, 2020, Business Week, Time Magazine. They, they document corporate crime, fraud, and abuse. In fact, Business Week in the September 11th issue, Look at this one. This just shows you how a business magazine riddled with corporate ads can still be courageous. It asks, too much corporate power? And then in page after page inside, with devastating detail about corporate abuses in all directions, Business Week magazine answers, yes, 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 yes. And takes a poll of the American people, 72% of whom think corporations have too much power over all aspects of their life. And in an editorial at the end, Business Week states unequivocally, quote, corporations should get out of politics, end quote. Here's Business Week magazine, far more progressive than the Republican and Democratic parties, who would never ask this question. They would never ask this question. Of course, the, the, the ruling powers would define violence in a way to exclude their own, don't they? And so you, you hear the word crime and violence, you think of street crime. Well, that's 19,000 homicides last year. Awfully high. Highest per capita by far in the Western world. But compare the preventable homicidal consequences of occupational hazards toxics, particulates. It's hard for students to really realize what kind of conditions a lot of workers work in, in the mines and foundries and factories. Well, 60, 65,000 people in this country die every year, according to the EPA, from air pollution, preventable. 56,000 die from occupational health hazards and trauma. Most of that is preventable. Uh, 80,000 die, according to the Harvard School of Public Health Physicians, from gross medical malpractice in the hospitals, not even counting emergency rooms, clinics, or doctor's offices. That's 100,000. That's 80,000 right there. And then if you go into one category after another, you know, you've read about the Firestone ATX wilderness tires underneath the unstable Ford Explorer. That finished off about 105 people in this country and 400 injuries just in the last three years. The Dalcon Shield mutilated hundreds of thousands of women. Even though the company knew it was hazardous, it didn't recall it, nor did its Aetna insurance company blow the whistle on it. And then you just go in one area after another, and the toll increases. 
and increases. Asbestos, that took tens of thousands of lives. The companies knew about asbestosis, mesothelioma, back in the 20s and 30s, didn't do anything about it, covered it up. Lead, the lead industry never had to put lead in gasoline or in paint. Uh, the devastation worldwide is extraordinary in terms of lead poisoning of the environment. And right now, uh, 200,000 black kids a year are poisoned by lead-based paint peeling off tenement walls, brain damage, and other kidney and other organ damage. I suppose when they grow up and go to school, age five, six, seven, the teacher thinks they have a learning disability. That's yeah, a learning disability. It's brain damage by lead poisoning. And we still couldn't do anything about that. Isn't that a shame? Isn't it a shame that in Hartford, Connecticut, in the inner city, you have rates of asthma uh, as high as 40 percent? Can't even breathe. There are five incinerators where poor people live, people of color, environmental racism. They don't put those incinerators in Princeton, New Jersey, do they? Do they put them in Bloomfield Hills in Michigan? Do they put them in Scarsdale in New York? Of course not. The poor die earlier. The poor pay more, the poor suffer more. And the people who harvest our food are the people who are paid the least, treated the worst, and damaged the most, the migrant workers who harvest our food. Where are our priorities? Where are our sense of, of commitment? What's knowledge for anyway? Just to get a degree, to get a resume, to get a job, and to go through life on your knees, becoming awfully rich and having financial consultants? and spoiling your kids and their kids. And then when you retire, you look back and you miss the justice train. You missed it and you had a pit open feeling in your stomach, just like a lot of corporate lawyers we interviewed for one of our books. Great success, great money. When it was over, they had a real empty feeling. They didn't represent justice. They represented corporate clients and they were, uh, their imaginations were overcome by what might be called retainer astigmatism. That's what it was all about. <clears throat> when people lose control and there's too much power in the hands of the few against the many, and the decisions are made against the many by the few, we have tens of millions of workers who can't form trade unions because of the notorious Taft-Hartley Act, which we pledged to try to work to repeal. That's been 53 years on the books. Most younger people don't even know what it means. In a whole variety of ways, it sets the stage for building hurdles against trade union organization that are higher than any other Western country by far. Uh, trade union membership has dropped below 10% in our country in the private economy, the lowest in 60 years. We give people facilities to form trade unions so they can collaborate and engage in collective bargaining the way investors can collaborate and engage in corporate activity. We will see a dramatic in increase in, in the standard of living and the standard of justice. If only because prices have been going up for 32 years, but wages for most people in this country have been sliding backward. Someone's made a windfall, I would think. There's a lot of, uh, uh, of back pay here that has to be corrected, at least in terms of uh, projected uh, wage earner uh, power. The criminal injustice system. Uh, who would ever have devised this failed war on drugs unless they wanted to worsen the objectives that they're supposed to lessen? Uh, we, we shouldn't be sending drug addicts to jail. We don't send alcoholics to jail or nicotine addicts to jail.
Addiction is a health problem. It requires rehabilitation. It requires acts of prevention. It requires spending more time people to people with young people so they're engaged in useful pursuits and don't lose themselves on some bad street corner and fall into bad company where the sidewalks are empty now except for the drug dealers. What we've done is we've We've criminalized the problem, militarized it. Now it's really a procurement drive by companies that want to sell equipment and services and helicopters to Colombia, South America, and all the rest of it. And And the communities are endangered, and the police are endangered, and we're spending tens of billions of dollars. I ask those who want to continue on the present path of the failed war on drugs, ask them one question. What is your standard of failure? Do you recognize any standard of failure by which you would reverse course? When the few have too much power over the many, public budgets are distorted. Have you any idea of how public budgets are distorted in our country? It's staggering. If a family distorted its budget this way, I think the children would have been taken away from the parents. The corporate-shaped federal budget is now spending $320 billion on military defense, driven not so much by defense considerations as by uh, the need for ever-growing procurement budgets uh, for Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Raytheon and, and Grumman and Northrop and all the rest of them. With their huge uh, weapon systems that many military analysts, including retired admirals and, and generals, think are totally useless strategically. We do not have any major enemy anymore. The Soviet Union is no more. In the past, we have demobilized. We've cut back budget, uh, military budgets. We're going just the other way now because it's driven by corporate profit in the military uh, contracting industry. Just what Eisenhower warned us about in 1960 with his comment on the military-industrial complex, just what General Douglas MacArthur warned us about in 1957 when he said our government must not exaggerate foreign threats in order to expand the military expenditures. And are we listening to them? No. Is there any difference between Gore and Bush uh, except they're arguing over how much more uh, they're going to do, uh, such as an easily decoyable missile defense system, $60 billion to begin with. Uh, that, that seems to be moving forward on a track. Uh, there's a lot of pressure in Washington on both Democrats and Republicans on that one. But there are all these weapon systems, F-22, Osprey aircraft, the Joint Strike Fighter, uh, more Seawolf submarines. It's like Joe Lieberman. He's never met a weapon system. He doesn't like it. He's all for personal morality. Then there's the corporate welfare budget, hundreds of billions of dollars. It starts out, you know, taxpayer funding of, sub of stadiums, arenas, ballparks, while clinics and public transit and schools crumble for lack of repair. You have these gleaming athletic palaces uh, where even the taxpayer often has to guarantee empty skyboxes because there aren't enough corporate moguls to pay for them. You know, sort of like the Roman Colosseum in ancient days, with one exception. In those days, they let the fans in free. But then, 
I don't know how many coursework there is here in, at Princeton, but it'd be great uh, senior thesis to work on corporate welfare. It's very sophisticated. The $6 billion estimated uh, of taxpayer subsidies, direct and indirect, for weapons exports by private corporations. That's a very, very uh, insightful analysis that's waiting to be made in terms of the credits and the debts and the subsidies and all the, all the ways that they can relieve the taxpayer of their assets. The pharmaceutical industry, uh, not only tax credits they get, but they get uh, free medical research and development that we pay for, like Taxol, AZT, dozens of drugs developed out of NIH and, and the Pentagon's drug company at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Health. Uh, all of these are given under monopoly marketing agreements to one or more drug companies, like Bristol-Myers Squibb didn't spend a cent developing or human clinically testing Taxol, anti-cancer drug. It's charging women with ovarian cancer six treatments. The cost is $14,000, according to letters we got from these women. $14,000. No price restraints based on taxpayer-funded uh, medicine, uh, medical developments and no royalties back to the government. And if they can't pay as patients, they go on Medicaid and the taxpayer pays once again to Bristol Myers Squibb, which this year will gross revenue $1.1 billion from tax sales. And that's just one of many examples. In area after, you cannot find a major industry in this country that is not receiving corporate welfare. How many of you heard of MSNBC? That's jointly owned by General Electric and Microsoft the two most profitable corporations in the country, probably. And they cut a deal. They dangled the 350 jobs before New York City's mayor and Governor Whitman a few years ago. And they said, okay, we're going to put it in one state or another, bid. And she won the bid. And one of the things that Bill Gates and Jack Welch demanded and got was that the taxes to the state of New Jersey paid by those 350 workers would be sent back to Microsoft and General Electric. That's corporate welfare. I don't see any blood boiling here. Does that worry you at all? Are we so, are we so, are, are we so numb? Are we? Are we so numb to these injustices? There's a great uh, professor of law at NYU many years ago said, you don't develop a cultivated sense of injustice, you'll never know what justice is. You'll never know what justice is. Develop a cultivated sense of injustice. It's a rigorous intellectual process. That money went back to Microsoft and General Electric. It didn't go to help the people in New Jersey. And why are these companies demanding corporate welfare when they're making all that money? Why do we have to give billions of dollars in tax credits to Intel and, and Microsoft and Cisco and Sun Microsystems when they're making gross profit margins that would make any former mogul drool with envy? Why, are we keep, why do we keep paying and why do we keep sending these checks, these treasury checks, in fact, uh, through these uh, tax credits because small taxpayers don't have enough power. That's why. They had their own organization. They had a checkoff system on the 1040 tax return and millions joined. There'd be a different tax system in this country. There'd be a more equitable one and one filled with, with a higher level of public purpose in addition to revenue gathering. 
And there's so many other areas where uh, Gore and, and, and Bush just uh, ignore or agree. Wasn't that an agreement fest, that other debate a few days ago? All I could say, we, 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 there were 36 areas at times when Bush and Gore said, I agree. I agree, I agree, I agree. B Bush ran out of agreements with Gore. He started agreeing with Clinton on the debate. And, Economists call this protective imitation, and, and, and that, that, that documents better than anything I could say how close the two parties are to morphing into one corporate party with two faces wearing different makeup being nourished by the same business interests. They can't get themselves to talk about corporate welfare or corporate crime or the agribusiness power grip over rural life and the small farm economy, which is in severe depression and, and distress in a period of economic growth. They can't get to them themselves to talk about why shouldn't the people own the Commonwealth and control it at the same time through intermediate institutions like the public lands and the public airwaves, where the landlords and the radio and TV stations are the tenants. When you don't like a program, you turn it off or you click to another channel, right? Does it ever occur to you to say, you know, there are a lot of rotten programs here and, and we're the owners and maybe we should get some time back every day into a structured audience TV network. Maybe we should get some of the cable channels away from the multiple um, movie rerun and sport rerun and nostalgia and home shopping channels. After all, who who gives them the monopoly license? Who gives them the license? Which is free. And for 70 years or so, the radio and TV stations have paid us nothing for a, a very, very uh, profitable public asset. Nothing to the FCC. Uh, now, if they were paying rent, if they were paying normal rents, then what would happen is we could take some of this money and fund our own radio and TV and cable channel operations so that we can communicate with another and give full flower to civic mobilization efforts, to solutions that are now not getting much voice, to the creativity, cultural, political, economic, social of the American people. Let me illustrate what Western Europe, out of war-torn Europe uh, in World War II, in the 1950s and 1960s, provided for their people. And then ask yourself, why don't we, in the year 2000? They provided universal health care coverage for all their people. They provided full paid maternity leave. They provided full sick leave for the worker as well as the immediate family. They provided one month paid vacation in Sweden. It's six weeks paid vacation. They provided adequate retirement benefits and they provided facilities for workers to form trade unions, which have a much higher percent of the market, uh, private market uh, with trade union uh, membership. Now, why don't we have any of this? 30, 40 years later, uh, we won World War II. We weren't reduced to rubble the way France was, and Germany was, and Belgium, and the Netherlands. 
Why don't we have it? Once again, we didn't have a social democratic party. We didn't have strong trade unions. We didn't have the kind of civic mobilization that basically said to these corporations, look, you're free to, to produce products and sell products and services, but you're going to be given boundaries. You're going to be given boundaries to your greed. And that we as a society are going to place human need over corporate greed, and then you're going to adjust to human need. And they adjust it. Yeah, they make money in Europe. Some, some people say, well, the young are turned off politics. They don't vote. Two-thirds of them don't even bother voting after your forebears uh, gave you the right to vote in age 18. I think uh, age 18 to 24, down to 34 uh, percent of that age group votes. Can't tell you how many times over the years I had college students come up to me and say, I'm just not turned on politics, to which I reply, keep saying it. And Ignore the lessons of history. You're not turned on politics. Down to the air you breathe, the water you drink, the health insurance your family doesn't have, the racial profiling you detest, politics will surely turn on you. You know, there's more than a functional answer to that question. There's an answer of self-respect and self-confidence. Uh, young people have been relied on in the past to break through new frontiers of justice, uh, to raise our frame of reference, uh, to uh, put their efforts on the line at some risk to themselves. This was done in the 60s on the war in Vietnam, on civil rights, on environment. Earth Day was uh, developed by Senator Gaylord Nelson, but it was implemented on 1,500 campuses in April 1970. It turned it into just a front page, lead off on the evening news, and made the environmental violence uh, uh, a continuing uh, priority for lots of people in this country. Led to a lot of good laws in the succeeding uh, two years that, that we worked on, the Air and Water Pollution Acts, for, for example. Now, students did this. Uh, students today uh, are being animated by anti-sweatshop efforts that are sweeping a lot of campuses. That, that really gets them to understand more what the global corporate world order is all about. They, don't ever let anybody use the word globalization the way Paul Krugman does. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with this guy. He gets his facts wrong in, in these articles and columns that he does in the New York Times. You ought to give him an exam. Uh, just the other day, he not only mischaracterized my positions, and he refuses to concede the errors, even though they are clear errors, and he won't reply. The other day, he was talking about Social Security, and he said, Social Security will go broke in the year 2037. That's completely false. It does not grow broke. Uh, you ought to look at his figures, look at the assumptions of the Social Security trustees. Social Security never goes broke like bankrupt. It's over. Does he teach here? <laughs> huh? He teaches here. Well, my commiserations. The issue, the issue here 
It's corporate globalization. It's autocratic systems of international governance called WTO, World Trade Organization, under the GATT Revised Treaty, and the NAFTA Agreement. It's corporate globalization. It's a system of governance. It's autocratic. It's secret. And it subordinates critical non-commerce values, such as workplace, environment, and and, and consumer health and safety values to the dictates and supremacy of international commerce. And it does so because that's the way companies can get the lowest costs around the world. By having countries that treat their people better being charged by other countries that their health and safety standards in our country, for example, Im impede imports, that they are trade restrictive, and that they have to be changed. And, and who says so? Secret tribunals under the WTO in Geneva, Switzerland. Completely contrary to the run, way we run our courts. They are closed to all citizens and all press. They have no public transcript. They have no independent appeal. The conflict of interest standards for the trade judges is an absurd, unenforceable uh, maneuver. They can moonlight with companies on the side. And if we lose, if we've lost five out of five environmental challenges, uh, we have to repeal our regulation or our laws or pay economic fines to the winning country uh, until we're in compliance. The problem is that not only is trade uber alles in terms of the mandate, not only does uh, the WTO trump all U.S. environmental treaties with other countries, treaties that have to show they're least trade restrictive, but they penalize the countries that treat their people better and let off the countries that treat their people worse. Brutalized child labor producing products in some countries around the world uh, under WTO, that commerce can flow and it has to flow internationally. And we can't impede it. We can't buy products from child labor in this country is illegal. But we cannot legislate a ban on importation without running aground the provision in the WTO agreement that says there will be no trade restrictions from one member country against another based on how products are produced, except for prison labor. And child labor is excluded from that definition. What? So, do you see Bush and Gore talking about WTO? or NAFTA. They want more of it. That's because none of them have ever read one page of this, these agreements, no, nor have any members of Congress before they passed them except Senator Hank Brown, who voted for NAFTA and was persuaded by us uh, to read the WTO agreement, several hundred pages, and he read it and he was aghast and he said, how did I ever vote for these things? I am now voting against the WTO because of its anti-democratic provisions. He's the only member of Congress who did that. He was a Republican, by the way. He's He's now a college president in, uh, in Colorado. Educational content. This is also often a reflection of the powers uh, that be. You go around law schools in our country, you really have to search to find a course called corporate crime. You imagine we're in a corporate crime wave and you have to search. Maybe there are a handful of 169 law schools, maybe a dozen will have a course called corporate crime. You go to medical schools, and until recently, they ignored nutrition. That was considered intellectually feeble, of course. Uh, now they're saying obesity and, and junk food is a very serious problem, diabetes, etc., right down the line. Uh, 
Why is it that we see things right in front of us, but we really don't see them? We don't see them. When I was your age, uh, cars were going through what's called the jukebox era of automotive design. All kinds of chrome strips and hood ornaments and fins and so forth. And people never, never really said, what are these fins for? What are these ornaments for? Other than to protect vehicles from pedestrians and collisions. <laughs> you know? And they're just style, that's all. It's just style. And time and time again, I'd be hitchhiking back and forth. I almost never left Princeton except hitchhiking. Yeah, I was broke the tedium, and the and I we'd come across crashes on Route One and elsewhere, and uh, it's just horrible, grisly situations. And I began to see how the cars crumpled, and the steering column would jam back into the driver's area, and just all kinds of ways that the structure did not absorb uh, the forces in a collision and minimize them before they were transmitted uh, to the occupants. And I, I began saying, this is really unbelievable. It, it was so obvious, why didn't I see these things? And part of it is that we were trained to look at cars exactly the way General Motors wanted us to look at them. Horsepower, horsepower style, you know, all the, the, the razzmatazz in those days that got people excited about cars. Instead of looking at them, how fuel efficient, how pollution emission are they? How do they imbalance the surface transportation system? How crash worthy are they? Uh, all of these and how easy is it to repair and maintain these vehicles? You know, it was the first leading cause of death among Princeton students in the 1950s. I lost many classmates, many classmates, uh, while we were here and in the 10 or 15 years after. And when I went to law school, I wrote a paper called unsafe automobile design and legal liability and turned it into the book unsafe at any speed and I was very fortunate I was I was very fortunate to go to Washington at a time when there were chair chairman of committees like Magnuson, Ribicoff and Nelson in the Senate and others in the House who had hearings they weren't scared to have hearings. They summoned the auto executive, something that you'd almost never see today, to testify. And I went to Lyndon Johnson's White House and met Joe Califano and others, and they were interested in some sort of federal motor vehicle safety role, of which there was none then. And I went to the reporters, and they actually covered it as a news beat. You can't do that today. The civil society is being frozen out of Washington. A lot of the citizen groups that you send 25 bucks to a year, the peace groups, the environmental groups, the consumer protection, pro-labor, civil rights groups, civil liberty groups, they're working hard for less and less achievement. They don't like to admit it. Nobody likes to admit it. The first step of change is to admit what the reality is. And the reality is that these two parties are in a frenzy of fundraising tens of millions of dollars from the same corporate interests. They brag about one giant dinner by the Democrats outfunding another giant dinner by the Republicans with the same fellows at the same dinner tables. And, and look at Gore. What did he do with Bon Jovi? Look, he closed, they had to close down the Garden State Parkway in the New, York, in New Jersey uh, Turnpike and, what, stranded about a million people. So Al Gore could go to a fundraiser uh, at $25,000 a person. I mean, what's going on here? What's going on is just what 
John McCain said, have it right here, said it again and again, quote, American cynicism about government is born of many factors, but none greater than our defense of a campaign finance system that is little more than an elaborate influence peddling scheme in which both parties conspire to stay in office by selling the country to the highest bidder. And 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 Senator Russ Feingold at the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles said, the big story at this convention is influence buying and influence peddling. Quite correct. Same corporate interests went to Philadelphia, Republican convention. It was over. They took a few days off, flew to, flew to Los Angeles, opened up shop there. The only difference I can determine was that the Republicans turned down General Motors' offer of free Cadillacs in favor of Buicks and Chevys, but the Democrats accepted the Cadillacs. So. When you have corporate domination of our society, you have commercialism run riot. What that means is that everything is expected to be for sale. Our government is expected to be for sale. Our democracy expected to be for sale. Childhood is expected to be for commercial exploitation. Our human genes are expected to be for sale. Our personal privacies are expected to be sales. Our universities are expected to be for sales. You know, societies uh, would, would, should heed uh, the caveat of all the major religions many, many centuries ago who warned about giving too much power to the commercial interest, which is so singular in its monetized driven mind. It's so focused on its objective of profit maximization and personal enrichment that it runs roughshod when it collides, as it inevitably does, with value systems that are far more important to a civilized society, whether it's democratic processes, something we call justice, health, safety, environment, respect for future generations, whatever. That's what happens when our national defense policies are basically a procurement drive by major corporations. And we spend so little money waging peace. We were spending all our money preparing for war against no known major enemy. It's got a life of its own now, this military budget. And if we spent more learning how to wage peace, how to foresee, how to forestall, how to anticipate conflict, how to perfect mediation, how to get early alerts, how to strengthen the United Nations with a well-disciplined peacekeeping force that doesn't have to be cobbled together at the last minute. One can see that commercialism without boundaries infects innocent minds as well as manipulative, avaricious minds. It makes us think that that's the way things have to be. 
It makes us think that things are inevitable, that corporate globalization is inevitable. We don't even think about civic globalization. A civic mobilization, globalization, where we come out with major efforts to deal with infectious diseases, to preserve and restrain the destruction of the global environment by expanding renewable energy, reducing greenhouse gases, and dealing with the ozone hole, and the depletion of oxygen in the oceans, and the, the, the slaughter of the equatorial forest. We don't, that's civic mobilization. Corporate globalization, our pharmaceutical companies who can't be bothered to research drugs and vaccines against global infectious diseases because there's not enough money in it. Corporate globalization, our tobacco companies, hell-bent on hooking tens of millions of youngsters in Africa, Latin America, and Asia into a lifetime of smoking addiction, which will take one out of every three of their lives. Corporate globalization is a, a propping up of dictators with whom they can cut deals and live with because they consider themselves amoral as business organizations. Civic globalization is supporting land reform efforts, trade union efforts, democratic processes, freedom of association in these countries where the people are so repressed that they can hardly make it through life without such inordinate pain and self-destruction. We have to begin with a progressive political movement. Over a hundred years ago it started in this country out of East Texas in 1887. Farmers with nothing, nothing except a heart, a head, and their legs organized 200,000 farmers in six counties in, in a few months in East Texas and then launched the progressive populist movement. It had its warts, had some of its dark side, as some of you know, uh, but it brought us probably the most important structural political reform in institutional ways that any reform movement has before or since. They took on first the banks and the big uh, railroads and then moved to elect their senators and governors, almost elected their president. They changed the contour. That led to the initiative referendum recall. It led to political reforms at the ballot. And we're due. We're way overdue for something now. The two parties command the money. They command most of the media. They command the statutory barriers that keep third parties off of ballots without extraordinary expense in a catch-22. They command access to debates, which is the gateway to tens of millions of American uh, voters. And they command our own imagination by making us think that it really is a choice between a bad Democratic Party and a worse Republican Party. That the bad versus the worse provides an adequate choice for this country. We cannot rely on these parties to even differentiate themselves on the corruption of money in politics. Unless we do something about that, all these other issues, all these other injustices are going to be very difficult to tackle. They're likely to get worse and worse, including the ones I mentioned, the ones that are on your minds. Indeed, our own minds are often restrictive of our own abilities to shape the future of our country. In our, in our world, our own minds. The Green Party is a pillar growing to establish a progressive political movement, but it's not the only source. It's the political source. But because its strategy is to link with the civic culture 
with the civic organizations that are on the ground in the inner cities and, and, and in the rural areas and in the, far, and, in the suburbs and, and fighting the good fight without a major political party behind them. In fact, they often have to fight these parties, like the farmers are having to do now. And this conjunction of the civic culture and political progressivism is what gives an authenticity, a grassroots mooring to this effort. And this is what makes it not evaluatable by the inside the beltway pundits who really don't understand what's going on here. They, don't, they, they look at the largest political rallies of the presidential campaign, 12,000 in Minneapolis, 12,000 in Boston, 15,000 in Madison Square Garden. They say, oh well, that's just the hardcore. Look at the polls. Look at the polls. The point is that November 7th is just a stopping point for the first stage of building a progressive political movement, and we're not going to stop there. through that November 7th date with millions of voters behind us and build an even more effective and pervasive party, but we will immediately be a Green Party watchdog on the two parties and the politicians in Washington saying to them in the only language they understand, the loss of votes, that if they don't shape up for the American people, they're going to continue to shrink down before the Green Magnet and the Green Hammer. One, a majority new party can be built on a broad, deep agenda that came out of the Green Party Convention in Denver with one million Americans promising to raise $100 each a year and commit 100 hours of volunteer time. That's my rough estimate of what it takes, given the appeal of this agenda as more and more people learn about it, of what it takes uh, to dramatically change the political landscape enhance our stronger democratic tools to deal with the problems here and abroad, and to open up enormous opportunities for young people for their multiple creativities that are now subjected to corporate standardization, corporate commercialization, corporate homogenization, corporate stultification. Do you know how many creative people in this country have no voice? They can't reach anybody? nine major media conglomerates, or maybe eight, dominate most of the circulation, magazines, newspapers, most of the viewership, the listenership, a company that could not own more than 12 radio stations a few years ago, now is enabled by the Telecommunications Act of 96 to own 800 radio stations. And there are fewer reporters and fewer camera crews and fewer creative producers. That's just one indication of the price that we're paying and if we continue to grow up corporate instead of civic, we will continue to shortchange our horizons and our imaginations and our ability to pass this world on to our future generations, to our descendants, in ways where they will not curse us. They will praise us because we found the time and we found the idealism and we found the knowledge 
to raise and lift the standards of living, the standards of justice and opportunity here and around the world as befits the most powerful country in the world that's been shortchanging itself for so long. If we don't do that, what will our descendants think of us? Will they think of us as narcissists? Will they think of us as composed of the contented classes who had influence but didn't use it in the furtherance of justice, what Daniel Webster called the great work of human beings on earth? Will they think that we were otherwise trivialized, that we were frantically running around with our cell phones and frantically running around in, in crowded community and forgetting about the most important things in life for ourselves as well as for our successors? Maybe people don't care about what posterity thinks, since that word is hardly used anymore compared to the way it was used years ago in our country. But I think if we settle back and we ask ourselves the following, if we're about 20 years old, people here who are 20 years old, you think you got a lot of time. You got 15,000 days and a little over 2,000 weeks before you're 65. And they're going to go with lightning rapidity. If you don't develop here at Princeton a public philosophy, take some tranquil time, close off all the clutter, and ask yourself, what kind of mark do you want to make on this world beyond having a good standard of living? What else is there? Is that all to it? You're anointed because you are at Princeton. You're going to go high into the income range of, of millions of Americans. Uh, you, you, you've got status, and you've got the benefit of the doubt just because you're going to be a Princeton graduate. But what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? What you do with it is what you think about now before you get on the rat race, before you start calculating your opportunity costs, before you start being enveloped in a materialistic corporate culture. You have to ask yourself, what are you worth to yourself other than dollars? What are you worth to your family and to your neighbors and to your friends and to the people of the world? Somebody has to do something about these global problems. Somebody has to do something about the shortchanging of Americans in this country who work hard every, day, every year and are sliding behind. Why isn't it you? Why, why don't you use your independent work to pursue this course of action? I was fortunate to use my independent work at Harvard Law School to write a paper on automobiles. It opened up whole new horizons for me. I defined being a lawyer as a pursuer of justice. I learned what Cicero meant when he defined freedom as participation in power. That's the definition of freedom that the oligarchy doesn't want us to contemplate. It isn't just freedom from arbitrary action. It's freedom to participate in power, which in turn allows us to pursue justice, which is the precondition for the true pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness cannot occur without the pursuit of justice. So think about this. Think about how you badly want your senators and representatives to vote their conscience, and why don't you vote your conscience? 
Why don't you vote your interests? Why don't you vote your potential? Why don't you vote the opportunity to help build this progressive movement, which is enlisting and inviting your help at a very young age in all capacities, including being candidates, organizers, strategists, being people who can roll up their civic sleeves and show that there is a possibility that the sovereignty of the people will prevail over the sovereignty of the corporate institution. That there is a possibility that people can engage a deliberative democracy that will plan their future instead of having corporations plan our future. And right now, corporations are working overtime to plan our future. They're planning our occupational future. They're planning our governing future. They're planning our genetic engineering future. They are planning our invasion of privacy future. They are planning on our very horizons that are permitted us. They are planning every day all over the world because that's their job. It's our job to make sure that they have boundaries, that they have to adhere to other than commercial considerations. They have to bend before the needs of people. Again, human need over corporate greed. I hope that, I hope that those of you... Some of you read Professor Silver's book where he thinks in a hundred years, Professor here, there'll be two species, the gen-rich species and the naturalis, the genetically enriched who can afford it, and they suddenly become prettier, smarter, stronger, healthier, longer-lived, and they start interbreeding, and the naturalis who can't engage the expense of human genetic engineering Maybe this is a little bit of a science fiction. He doesn't think so. But maybe we should ask ourselves, in addition to all the other ways that corporations are planning our future, when they, did, when they begin to plan our genetic future, when they begin to convert the genetic inheritance of the planet into 17-year monopoly patents, when they begin to be patenting human gene sequences, 5,000 of them, that's serious business. When corporations start determining genetics with all the imperatives of distorted power and how that can be abused, both within the corporation and by other forces around the world, that's enough, I think, of an incentive for us to say that we better wake up and we better use our time more fruitfully and we better take advantage of this great opportunity that tens of thousands of people are taking advantage of as they log into our website, votenator.com or votenator.org. Take advantage of this, because from this seed, from this yearling, may come an, ex an exceptional flowering of democracy, an exceptional flowering of civic self-confidence, and an exceptional flowering of people's expectation levels. And I hope that we will receive your support because it's really your support, not just our support. I hope we will make some history on November 7th and move on to an elaboration of democracy as if people mattered, first, foremost, here and abroad. Thank you very much.
Mr. Nader will uh, take some questions from the audience uh, for a, a few minutes. Then afterwards, as I mentioned, there's a, a $10 uh, suggested donation uh, event at uh, the, the Triumph uh, Brewery, which is across the street. I'm sure none of you know that. Um, and if, if you'd like to come over there and, and figure out how to volunteer or help out, um, we just haven't been able to uh, do that here, so we would love to have you come over. And if at any juncture during the question period or, or any other period you'd like to uh, break into the chant that they have at uh, colleges across the nation of let Ralph debate so that it's clear that Princeton would like him in the debates, I'm sure we wouldn't object. We have, uh, is there a PA system right, right there? Yeah. Thank, you very, thank you very much, by the way, for your response. Yes. What is the what is your position on same-sex marriage? Pardon? What's your position on same-sex marriage? Equal rights, equal responsibilities. Gore, Gore doesn't come close. Yes, um, I just wanted to bring up at several points in your talk tonight, you were talking about the movements of the 60s and 70s, and it seemed to imply a lack of involvement currently. Um, and I, that's exactly what the media is portraying to us, but I'd like to bring up November 30th in Seattle against the WTO, April 16th in D.C. against the World Bank and IMF, the Republican National Convention, the Democratic National Convention, which was actually the largest protest at a national convention in, in American history, much larger than Chicago 68. Um, and so there is a movement of direct yes. action and civil disobedience against corporate domination, and we're, you know, growing and strong. So it's dangerous that, to pretend it doesn't exist. It still has a way to go, though, to compare oh. with the 60s. But there is a lot going on. <laughs> There's a lot going on, and, and I think the anti-sweatshop movement was a real uh, lever for a lot of the other activities. Seattle, the real awareness builder. And that was started by a couple people in New York City with a little office, and they branched out, and the students traveled abroad, Central America, Southeast Asia. Quite a story. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a lot of the enormous rapid developments and progress in fields like technology and medicine couldn't have happened or would have happened much more slowly if rich corporations hadn't invested the enormous amounts of money they have into these projects, aren't there some good things that we get out of rich corporations, or is there a price? What, what do you think about that? Well, that's, I'm glad you raised that, because we are highlighting some companies that are greatly ignored, who are way ahead of the large companies in recycling and pollution control. For example, the Interface Corporation in Atlanta, Georgia, which is the second largest commercial carpet and commercial tile manufacturer. Uh, it, since 1994, has been moving toward a zero pollution goal and a maximum recycling under the CEO, Ray Anderson. And it's interesting that, that Gore and Bush, who presume to be pro-business, do not highlight uh, these contrarian, superb performances. Uh, because, it, in effect, to highlight it puts the lie to the petrochemical companies and the auto companies who keep saying, no, we can't do this, it's impossible, it costs too much, it's technology and technologically infeasible. When Ray Anderson's comment is uh, that 
his company's reducing costs and respecting the planet, to use paraphrase his words. So there is a social venture network of several hundred companies that are trying to run their labor relations right, trying to run their environmental standards right, their consumer protection standards right. But unfortunately, the dominant theme of business are in the hands of the big companies. They have an ordinate political power compared to these little social venture companies. And they have command of the media. You don't hear about Interface Corporation, but you hear a lot about Bill Gates and Microsoft, for example, constantly. So we're trying to highlight that as we go around the country because it shows what can be done by a company supposed to meet the bottom line and meet the peril like any of the other companies. And they have a website, by the way, if you're not familiar with them, a social venture. You probably can find a lot of examples like that. Yes? Yes, my question is also about a lot of the protests this year. I think one of the biggest differences between this past year and other protest years like 89, 90, and 68 is the fact that these protests have not been taken seriously in the media or in any sense by local governments. And I wondered if you would comment about the long-term consequences of this to the rights of free political expression and association in this country. Well, it is very serious. You can see just in 30, 40 years the trivialization and reorientation of the news media to lifestyle stories, extraordinary emphasis on the weather, on TV. I mean, they've got a meteorologist, a new one coming out every day from some of these stations, and they always start the weather over the Cascades, heading over Montana, heading east. And you're saying, what's going on in my city? And they say, well, you know, there's little suburbs, and one has 61 degrees, and four miles down the road is 66, and they want to waste more time. They say 20 years ago it was 74 degrees. It's um, You can't. I, I go back and see the, the stories that we pro provoked in the 60s and 70s that led the CBS, NBC, ABC News, they wouldn't even be a footnote today. And Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather and Jennings, they've all commented on this, they've written on this, but they can't, they can't do anything, but they're not in charge. And as a result, uh, the voice of active citizenry uh, is not being heard. When was the last national, new national leader for civil rights, environment, or women's rights? When? That's about 20 years ago because they can't get on. They can't get on TV to be known, to attract audiences. There's no more civic celebrity, even right down to the local level. And the 30-minute evening news is nine minutes ad, four minutes sports, four minutes weather, one minute chat-chat between the two, an animal story, a New England Journal of Medicine story, and it leads off with street crime on the principle that if it leads, it leads. That's the story. If it bleeds, it leads. And then, you see, they completely, that's why we have to take it away from them. We've got to get a certain amount of time back, uh, one hour drive time, one hour prime time on radio and TV for an audience network. We've actually drafted legislation on this. And if you want to get more details on this, the website is essential.org. You want to get more details on internships and civic action uh, careers, log into essential.org and look for a book called uh, uh, Good Works, a guide to social change careers. Thank you. Yes. It's rare to hear any politician, especially an American politician, talk about 
justice with the passion and eloquence that you have done. I'm curious that one of the other great areas in which there has been consensus in American politics has been Israel. And I wonder whether your sense of justice leads you to challenge US policy that blindly supports Israel and is silent while Palestinian children are slaughtered in the streets. I think, um, I think there's a growing realization in this country, you see it everywhere, uh, that uh, without justice for the Palestinians, you're not going to get peace. And the Israelis, there's a million of them belong to peace now who further that viewpoint that you can have Israeli security, which they want, deserve, and they have. They have enormous security uh, advantages, overwhelming military establishment, according to the Jaffa Institute itself. Now it's justice for the Palestinians. They're as close as they've ever been to negotiating an agreement. Even on the right of return, Israel has agreed to 100,000 Palestinian refugees. Uh, there's a breakthrough on Jerusalem before this latest uh, eruption. Uh, the question of the land territory for the new Palestinian state uh, is still subject to discussion, but they've agreed to a new pal to an independent Palestinian uh, state. So they're very close to agreement, but you know there are forces on all sides who don't want an agreement, and this, these things erupt. And our position as a nation, it should, to, to honestly broker a return to these negotiations, must be not to take sides. You can't take sides and be a broker to bring them back together again and conclude these negotiations. So that a few years from now, both sides wonder what took them so long. And if you looked at the way Gore and Bush dodged that question with their knee-jerk reaction, that's not being a friend to Israel. That's not being a friend to peace and justice. That's being a political coward. Um, in his introduction of you, uh, Professor Falk, I think, uh, mentioned um, what he called vague and limited reforms, and I think he was alluding to actually uh, the McCain and Feingold legislation, and I guess I'm curious if, about what you think specifically, uh, not just about whatever kind of um, platitudes these guys have supplied us with, but actually with the nuts and bolts of their proposals. They're, they're weak. Um, the the McCain-Feingold bill is a fraction of what it was originally. That's why I, I sort of I call it the the Cain Gold Bill. You know, uh, it, it's it's it was stripped down because McConnell and others, you know, could block it, the filibuster. But the best way I think, and I'm open to other ideas, is a well-promoted voluntary checkoff up to $250 per person on the 1040 tax return. You don't want to give anything? You don't have to give anything. But any ballot-qualified candidate that logged into the public funds that proceed from that checkoff couldn't take private money, would be given free time on radio and TV as part of the license negotiation with radio and TV stations. And as such, uh, would, would solve a good deal of the problem, not the independent expenditure problem or the billionaire spending millions of dollars on his or her election. Those are 
That requires a reversal of Buckley versus Vallejo, and it requires a constitutional amendment. So you but would certainly you would the tide that. would turn very dramatically. Uh, you could have a, an expansion situation where if someone is supported by independent expenditures, the object, uh, the, the, the candidate who's being slammed by independent expenditures would get more time on TV and radio. But that's about where we're at now in terms of the existing Supreme Court decisions. Uh, what is your stand on immigration? Do you favor immigration or do you only cert, uh, favor certain kinds of immigration? Do you believe it takes away U.S. jobs? Or, uh, what is your philosophy about Let it? me start with the easily ignored one. I oppose brain draining the rest of the world through H-1B visas. There are plenty of people in this country who are in the computer industry and can be trained in new lang computer languages. There's a new African-American group that's protesting. Uh, the Silicon Valley's now successful effort in Congress to allow several hundred thousand people of skills to come in so they can be paid less and pushed around more uh, to work in the computer industry. There's very good data showing that this is a phony uh, shortage that could easily be ameliorated, uh, but they want to be able to pay less. Uh, we are brain-draining physicians, scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, and others from third-world countries in particular, where they are very much needed. We are a hog on the rest of the world, and we ought to stop it. Uh, and, and, and just because we can pay more, um, just because we can pay more and stock options and all the rest compared to what they uh, receive. Um, that, you know, when you, dr when you brain drain a company like that, a country like that, there's a rather severe consequences. If somebody did that to us, we'd be, we'd be outraged. Now, as far as low, you know, impoverished immigration, if we pursued a foreign policy in Mexico over the years in Central America and elsewhere, where instead of supporting authoritarian and dictatorial regimes and oligarchies, we pushed for support for democratic processes and economic development as if, as if workers and peasants counted. Uh, they wouldn't want to come to this country, most of them. People come from economic desperation and political repression, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, they're driven out of their country by destitution and oppression. And our foreign policy's got to address that. <laughs> Having said that, two other points. One, if immigrants are in this country and their children are in this country, um, they've got to be given the protection of the labor laws. They've got to be given health, same health protection, education protection. Because they are, because they are doing uh, work that, you know, people don't want to do in this country. And instead of criminalizing the borders, they ought to have work permits come in, a few months, harvest, for example, or they can go back with some money uh, for, their, for their families. Remember, it's the employers that are never prosecuted. The meat packers who are exploiting you know, illegal immigrants into this country, you know, bringing them in and, and uh, exploiting them because they can't speak up, they are very rarely prosecuted. When the INS raids, they go after the workers, not the employers and their windfall. Uh, I'm not against, I'm against open borders, though. I mean, you can't, you can't have open borders. You can't, you know, if you have open borders, you're replacing entire Princeton faculty. 
with with bilingual geniuses from all over the country, all over the world. You see, they'll come here. All these, all these. All these columnists would be replaced, you see. All these chamber of commerce types. No, you can't have open borders, but you can you can have great fairness uh, on all sides and respect countries um, uh, respect countries' thirst for dem democracy. Hi, I have tremendous respect for the work you've done in your career, and I particularly appreciate your commitment to um, clean and honest campaigns. And for that reason, I'm really distressed by the fact that in this congressional district, the Green Party has been conducting push polls, which is a particularly deceptive form of negative campaigning. Is this a practice that you support? And if you don't, can you tell the Green Party here that you're opposed to it and ask them to stop? Are you saying push polls? Yes. I'm not familiar with them, I mean, I, I, unless I learn more about them. I didn't think they were at that level of sophistication. <laughs> it's pretty simple. If you call, if, if a caller says that they're calling to conduct a poll, and when a person, when the person who's called answers that they support a candidate, for instance, the Democratic candidate in this race, Rush Holt, the caller then says things such as, "Would you, well, would you support Rush Holt if you knew that he were in favor of X, Y, and Z?" And many of these things, the X, Y, and Z, are not true. Um, it's a well, deceptive that, practice. You know, you obviously can't comment on something as generalized as that. Maybe they say that was his record. That was his voting record. If we were able to send you information about specific cases of this happening, would you use your influence with the party, Green Party here to try to stop it? Well, I certainly would tell him if that was the case. I'm no fan of Congressman Holt's record. Not very good. But that doesn't mean he should be subjected to deceptive yeah. push polls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mr. Nader, uh, I am concerned about the Supreme Court. You know that the next president will appoint between two and four Supreme Court judges. There is a difference between Al Gore and George Bush on reproductive rights, on minority rights, um, on uh, giving uh, public tax funds for religious schools, and many other issues. Uh, so I I'm concerned what, what will happen if you take away enough votes for Al Gore, who said he's going to appoint uh, his idols are Scalia and Thomas, what's going to happen to Roe versus Wade and other OSHA and your and your clean water and your public lands? Uh, yeah. You may make the difference. Well, first of all, in 40 states, Bush and Gore are way ahead of each other. You know, like Texas, Bush and Gore and New York. So. Uh, that, that's gonna, not going to be effective. People could vote green and still go with their favorite least of the worst. The second is, I'm sorry to have to inform you that in the civil rights area in the Justice Department, according to the lawyers in the civil division, the litigation enforcement record of Clinton-Gore on affirmative action and police brutality is worse than under Reagan-Bush, only in anti-housing discrimination. Are they better? The abysmal civil liberties record of Clinton-Gore has filled 40 columns of Anthony Lewis in the New York Times for the last seven years. That was his word, abysmal civil liberties record. The regulatory agencies which we work on, OSHA has never been worse. 
has not issued one toxic control standard. Uh, the Democrats have become very good at electing very bad Republicans because they've lost their historic significance. I hold them responsible for losing the Congress to the extreme wing of the Republican Party, Newt Gingrich and Trent Lott. I'm not going to let them off on that. I mean, imagine what Lyndon Johnson or Harry Truman or FDR would have done with Newt Gingrich. They had him for breakfast. Reproductive uh, rights. On, uh, on the Supreme Court, on the Supreme Court, uh, if you ask the liberal Democrats um, who the two worst justices are, they would say Scalia and Thomas. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. Okay. Scalia was confirmed in the U.S. Senate 98 to nothing. The only two absentees were Republican. Senator Albert Gore was part of the unanimous Democratic senator support for Scalia. And he never hit his ideology during the hearings. He was blatant about it. 98 nothing. Clarence Thomas, after Anita Hill hearings, cleared the deck in the Senate when it was controlled by the Democrats. George Mitchell, Democratic majority leader. Eleven Democratic senators took him over the top in a 52 to 48 uh, win for Clarence Thomas. I was there. We were trying to change votes right to the last minute. George Mitchell and the Democratic leadership didn't use a fraction of their energy to get two, three more Democratic senator votes. I don't give them any credibility, the Democrats, at all. Not to mention that they've now lost the Senate and Senator Hatch has a veto on anything Gore sends up. Not to mention that you really can't predict how some of these people will turn out. You know, Brennan, Warren, Stevens, Blackman, Souter, not so bad. They're all Republicans. They stunned some of their presidential nominators, especially Eisenhower, who said that Warren was his worst mistake. It was probably the best thing he ever did. So I, uh, I, uh, so I, but, but I can't. I think, uh, I think basically the, the question is, are there similarities on such grave issues, as I mentioned today, uh, so significant they far outweigh their differences, especially when you can't trust Al Gore to fight for his differences, like environment. He has betrayed one, one assertion after the other in his book in 1992, whether it's nuclear power, pesticides, the motor vehicle industry, uh, whether it's genetic engineering industry. It just has been an enormous disappointment. There's a new group that just formed, environmentalists against Gore, made up of some of the most prominent environmentalists in the country, like David Brower, Randy Hayes, and others. And the ones who endorsed Gore, then they, they were clear about it. They didn't like his record, but they thought Bush was worse. Well, let's put it this way. Here's the difference between Bush and Gore when it comes to corporate power. It's the velocity with which their knees hit the floor when corporations knock on the door. And, and, and while, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and while Gore is really a big corporation running for president disguised as a human being, Bush, uh, excuse me, Bush is, did I say Gore? Bush. Bush is a, is a great corporation, is a big corporation running for president. I mean, he's totally corporate. But Gore is the great, you know, Gore fluctuates on any given day between becoming the great imposter or the great pretender. So take your choice. I just don't think it's good enough for us. Take one more question. Okay. Um, I know this might be a 
somewhat unpopular question, and this is an unpopular issue to a lot of people, but do you support a Bill of Rights for the animals? And if you, if you do, would you take steps in outlawing vivisection for farms and factory farms? Well, first of all, part of that is easy. I mean, factory farming, crushing chickens and hogs and cattle together, is not good for them. It's not good for us. It requires uh, preventative uh, application of huge amounts of antibiotics uh, before they get sick, and that transfers into our dinner table contents. And it's terrible for the environment. When you replace thousands of hog farmers, small hog farmers in Iowa, with these giant hog farms and the huge pileup of manure, and when, the, when these uh, lagoons break, as they did in North Carolina a couple of years ago during the floods, it's horrible for the environment always. You don't have to have a flood. So that's an easy one. There's got to be limits on that. There's got to be limits on the crowding factor as well. I don't know if any of you have seen some of these chicken uh, farms and so on. I mean, the crowding is just unbelievable. Uh, and they get sick. And so they, they get in their feed every day, the antibiotics, etc. So it's not good for consumers, not good for the environment, it's not good for the animals. So that's an easy one. As far as medical research, that's a tough one. Um, but it's not that tough. I mean, if there's a choice, if there's a way to avoid burning the eyes of rabbits to test cosmetics, and there is, you don't burn the eyes of rabbits to test cosmetics. However, 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 I think Dr. DeBakey makes a good point that there are many discoveries that would have been delayed or impossible without. Uh, testing on animals, but it can be dramatically reduced and is being reduced because of the efforts of animal rights organizations. So it's going in the right direction. Now the question is, the, the big question now is genetic engineering and producing uh, pigs and then transplanting them, uh, their organs into, uh, and pretty soon there are going to be people in this audience who are going to become lawyers and they're going to be grappling with the liability issues of corporate-produced humanoids. So get, re get ready for some pretty, pretty difficult ethical and legal questions uh, as the genetic engineering machine rolls on. Have one more? Okay. In recent times, there have been a number of patents filed for things like business methods like Amazon.com's one-click shopping yes. or software algorithms. Yes. This is a big cause of concern for people in the open source software industry yes. because it greatly restricts their freedom of coding. How would you reform the patent system if elected? Well, I mean, much stricter standards. So business methods and, and marketing methods are not given patents. The patent office has just gone berserk and lowering their standards so that they get patents for you know, normal common sense type uh, uh, forays in selling products. Priceline is an example of that. And so, but the patent office is out of control uh, by the people who it's supposed to serve. And we want to have a project coming up probably next summer, uh, a student-led uh, and supervised project on the patent office in just that area. If you want to look into what we're doing, log into essential.org. That's one of that's a nonprofit. It has nothing to do with our campaign. Essential.org, look under consumer project on technology. And Jamie loves writings in all these areas. He's a 
Princeton-trained economist who, uh, who has been leading uh, the fight on these things, as well as other intellectual property uh, aspects in the pharmaceutical industry and others around the world. The world. So, and then you can give them a call and, and get more details on, on, that, uh, on that issue. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much. Uh, you know the Ivy League? Yale and Harvard can't win any Ivy League title without having to go through Princeton, right? And you have Harvard's Al Gore and Yale's George W. Bush. And too bad we won't have Princeton's Ralph Nader on those debates. But this is the last time I pledge to you that the Debt Debate Commission is going to have that monopoly power to hold the keys to the gateway to tens of millions of American voters. This week we will file a lawsuit against the Debate Commission. And after the election, we're going to start a People's Debate Commission starting after the election. Never again will this crooked company, controlled by the Democrats and Republicans, squelch new significant third-party candidates, which is the principal way to regenerate politics in any country, is to give new political stars a chance. Let them play their little games once more in, in Missouri and have Jim Lair plead for them to uh, illustrate any differences, um, because that's their last hurrah. Just wanted to remind you all, come to Triumph for the fundraiser after this. We'll all be there. Thanks a lot.